Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Rosalind Malmud and Andy Rosen are both psychologists. About 18 months ago, we asked them to comment on changes in the style of therapy or the needs of their patients that may be related to the COVID pandemic. They both agreed kindly to join us today to look at some of the similarities or differences that may have occurred or are now necessary in their clinical work. Thank you for being with us. Has there been any substantive change in the focus or style or the requirement of doing psychotherapy since the beginning of the pandemic? I would say the most significant aspect of change has to do with the normalization of working through telepsychology, teletherapy. It's just become automatic. In my practice, it's typical for people to just assume that we're going to use Zoom or some similar method. As a practitioner, I've gotten completely used to it. Patients hardly ever comment on it. That, I think, is the biggest change in terms of the method. In terms of content, my practice is working with anxiety disorders. It's an interesting thing because what's happened over the pandemic is that the focus of the anxiety of patients is much less on COVID itself, and it's kind of receded to sort of a background issue, a foundation issue, and patients' concerns in terms of symptoms or problems that they're manifesting have returned to the kinds of issues that they were presenting before COVID. It's superimposed on aspects of COVID and its impact on their life, but only a certain percentage, and I'd say it's small, actually come in with the focus of dealing with COVID or anxiety about COVID or the issues of vaccination. There's a certain percentage, I'd say it's about 15 to 20 percent where that's like a primary focus. But for the rest of the patients, it's kind of returned back to the typical kinds of issues that they always presented, whether it's with phobias or OCD or general anxiety or, or even trauma. Even the trauma issues are not directly relating to COVID. I totally agree. The peripheral part of that is it's almost like it's normalized people going for mental health, not so much always because they have an issue, but because they're worried about returning their children to school or how do they deal with a parent that they're not able to see by either not wanting to fly or not being able to visit them in a facility. It's almost like it's normalized that part of coming to therapy. As I'm listening to you both, there's so much media attention to people need mental health care during the pandemic. I am now beginning to hear, based on also what both of you are saying and seeing, that it's not just pandemic-induced mental health needs, but general mental health needs. It seems that it may still be a common denominator, but it's not at the top of the list. How interesting that we've gone back to normal in, in so many ways. Do you ask them about their attitudes about COVID? What do you do with people who come and bring up the topic that they agree or disagree with vaccines and wearing masks? And like Roz would say, going to school, they bring the social issues into the therapy. Or perhaps they don't. I, I shouldn't assume that they do. But how do you deal with the fact when they bring in all these external issues that may or may not be related to perhaps their marital problems or their phobias? How do you address that? I approach that on the same ground that I would if a patient was presenting with any other thinking or behavior that I thought was potentially self-destructive, self-injurious, or maladaptive. 
whether it be any other impulsive behavior or behavior that's disregarding significant threats. So if it comes up directly in terms of phobia or fear of vaccine or some sort of paranoia about why people are being told to get vaccinated or masked. I approach it in the same way I would other issues. That is, let's look at the data. Let's look at the facts and get out of the emotionality and defiance issues, your dislike for being told what to do by authority figures. I approach it on that basis and I just say, come on, let's look at the facts. You're still concerned about vaccines when how many people we have data on now? So explain that to me. I approach it on just very objective scientific level like I would on any other level. I try to add a little bit of humor there. I'll mention something about George Washington's troops that all were vaccinated for smallpox and the polio vaccine, which came out in the summer of 55. It didn't take more than 15 years for polio to basically disappear. And then I just drop it because the anti-vacciners, they don't even want to hear anything. If I get really frustrated, I will try to explain some of the psychological underpinnings of what happens when you combine ignorance with defiance. That's good. I find that many people come to me because I wear the hat of a physician, not the hat of a psychotherapist. They are different hats. They overlap. I have to so frequently, at least the beginning, deal with the misinformation, and you have to look at the facts. We have 14 diseases that essentially have been taken off the table because of vaccines. A malaria vaccine occurred during the course of the COVID pandemic. It just amazes me how comfortable people are in making decisions not based on hard data. And that's become a focus of my, when I do the psychotherapy component or just actually medication management, I find it frustrating. I find it that I'm telling more and more people the same story. I wish I had it pre-recorded and they could just listen to it. It's an interesting thing because when a person has any kind of anxiety disorder, forgetting about COVID for a minute, those are all disorders in some respects of mistrust. Mistrust that 99.5 is more to be attended to than the 0.05. They can't tolerate any doubt. They can't tolerate any uncertainty. And so these are the kind of patients that when they hear stories, even if they don't consider the misinformation, well, you know, there was a person I heard about that got vaccinated and within two weeks died. That's enough material for somebody with perfectionistic thinking to be awfully anxious and not want to trust it. Sometimes it's hard for clinicians or even just non-anxious people to wonder, like, well, why are you paying attention to the point oh oh two anecdote instead of all of this data? But that's the problem with anxious people. That's what they do pay attention to. Mm-hmm. I find it very diagnostic to talk to people during the pandemic because several patients have said things to me that I would have never imagined they thought that way. One man who had two daughters, I asked him, were you vaccinated? He said, yes, but I'm not letting my daughters become vaccinated. Why? Because I heard it goes to their ovaries and I wanted to say what? But instead I was much more diplomatic. I said, where did you hear that? But it showed me a side of their thinking. I don't know, I really would have seen had it not been for the stresses of the pandemic. This has been, perhaps in my verbiage, a stress test to see truly how they operate under a stress over which they really have not as much control as perhaps they're used to having or want to have in life. I've seen that so frequently, and I have to see it now as a help. Do you guys see similar things? 
Actually, I heard about this big rumor that went around among the college males that the vaccination would make them sterile. It's an interesting thing. When I hear these kinds of statements, I say, well, you hear about the possibility of, say, reproduction issues or something, and that's compared to zero. What is it if you got COVID? Are you assuming if you got COVID, it doesn't impact on issues of, of reproduction or any other organ system? And they go, oh, yeah, that's true. They compare it to if they don't get vaccinated, they compare that to the risks of vaccination versus nothing instead of COVID. To me, it's well, why do people mistrust this? Because there's no more Wizard of Oz. Take us out of this scary journey. There's nobody like that anymore. There's no anybody anymore, including maybe doctors anymore, who have the answers. When there's no more Wizard of Oz, everybody starts attacking each other because nobody trusts anybody now. This has been going on not just in these last few years. It's been going on for the last 20 years. Nobody trusts that somebody knows what they're doing. And that makes it much more scary and makes people more aggressive towards each other. And that ripples into the psychotherapy sessions at times. A piece of psychotherapy or transference and countertransference issues, are they still viable in telemedicine, which is two-dimensional? What are your experiences in terms of the nature, depth, level of interaction, et cetera, with telemedicine versus in face? I have not given it much thought in terms of day-to-day -day work with patients. I think the obvious transference, countertransference are always there. Sometimes they're more palpable than others. I've been working tele from home as opposed to doing it from the office. So sometimes when the UPS guy comes and my dog barks, well, now my patients know I have a dog that is uh, disobedient, you know, something like that. So, you know, it's there because of the type of therapy I do now. It's, it's much, much less important. I don't see a big difference between the two. Brings up a big question that has the form of your therapy changed? Trained psychoanalytically, which is wonderful, but you're doing a different focus. Is that focus in brought about because of the telemedicine, or were you going in that direction anyway? It was going in that direction for many years, for many reasons, the way we practice, the focus, the symptoms, the expectations of patients to change quickly, to interface with medicine and more what we call now evidence-based treatment. So it was changing anyway. So I guess if this had happened 25 years ago, all of a sudden, if that were possible for me to see patients via Zoom, it would have had a bigger impact on treatment. The one thing I missed, I would have like little short questionnaires that I would give out to check on some changes in behaviors, and I would give it to somebody sitting in the waiting room, you know, just like a one-page form. And I kind of miss doing that because if I try to do that on the phone or send it to someone, I don't get any response. One of the things that's coming up, and it varies, of course, with the relationship that the therapist or the patient have with their insurance companies. In the state of Florida, the waivers for state employees has not been continued, so telemedicine is no longer being paid for by various insurance companies. There is suggestion that within the next year or so, and the dates change all the time and the variables change all the time, that Medicare is no longer going to allow telemedicine. And then there's the whole notion of visual versus just audio interactions. How do you think people are going to respond when they no longer have the option of telemedicine. I had the feeling that Medicare liked it because they can pay us less money for doing telehealth. It could be a difference of 20 to $40. Add that up. One of the things that bothered me is that folks who live many miles away from their therapist now have to leave work, get in the car, drive there, 
spend money for gasoline. It's not something that you can take a half hour, an hour, and then be back a major activity. That may interfere with the access to good therapy. Yeah, that part's true. I think generally there's going to be much greater access of mental health treatment if we continue with telemedicine. But I think at some point, probably it'll work its way out and people will make decisions that they should pay for telemedicine. In the meantime, I guess patients who all of a sudden have to pay more money probably will say, I have to go to the office now. And patients who aren't paying using insurance, they just come, they're not getting reimbursed. Prefer tele because of the ease, because of the time factor, because it's just, it works for them. Definitely. If I'm reading you correctly, the focus initially for psychotherapy with the pandemic was more in reaction to the pandemic. That seems to not be at the top of the list so much anymore. You've gotten back right. to normal psychological things and our ability to learn how to use telemedicine, which could be a paradigm shift in how we do psychotherapy. Agreed. At one moment is abnormal. At some point in the future, we adapt and now it becomes normal. It doesn't create such a, a reaction. I think you're seeing that relatively quickly. If there is a complete paradigm shift. Walking around with a mask is like, whatever. I see this young a woman who lives in Dallas, originally from Florida, traveling to Boston a couple of weeks ago. She said, well, in Dallas, she wears a mask wherever she goes. And people in Dallas look at her like she's some weirdo because she's wearing a mask. She goes to Boston if you're not wearing a mask as a weirdo. Mm -hmm. It depends on where you are as to what's normalized and what isn't. I feel the worst for people that are living alone among my elderly folks. Mm -hmm. And I felt really bad for the people going to school and the college students, and even for people like my son, the young employees, that their teams were all working from home. I think they really missed that ability to have lunch with folks, network and talk and have some camaraderie. The whole thing is, as I was in a meeting about the effect of this on therapists, and the whole point that came out of it was people need to be as connected as possible to other people. Clinicians need to stay connected to other clinicians. People in general need to connect to people. And ordinarily, we didn't have to be mindful to exercise that. But now, because it's so easy to not be around people, we really have to be much more proactive about maintaining connection. It's like a piece of homework for folks. I had mm -hmm. someone whose daughter only broke her applied and I had to push both the daughter to take the mom out just to get her out of the house. I was seeing mm -hmm. some cognitive loss just because of the pure isolation. Yeah. To go back to the term paradigm shift for psychotherapy and the whole therapeutic experience, which used to be getting out, going to the doctor's office and the like, we can still offer a good therapeutic experience. It really is a fascinating thing. The stress of how to deliver our clinical skills in a different manner may have forced us to adapt and grow up. It's an interesting thought. I think that so much of what we do or have done we don't necessarily know what the reason for doing it that way was. For example, where did it come about that a psychotherapy session was 50 minutes? It was never data-driven that, well, 50 minutes is better than 45 minutes or not as good as 60 minutes. It just came about. And the same thing with frequency. We just got used to doing it that way intensive therapy. Why spread it out, at least with some disorders, if it was indicated and a person could be seen four or five days a week for three weeks? Mm -hmm. Certainly with tele, it's much more 
accessible to do that. Then it just kind of evolved into, well, the patient can only afford such and such, or the insurance company said, right, you say, Rod, you can only see this person for 10 sessions and then approvals. None of it's factual, clinical-based decisions. Something else caused it. Yeah. So there are a lot of changes here, subtle and not so subtle, that are mm-hmm. occurring because of our exposure to the need. One more thing I just wanted to add to this. Some of it is like assigning homework to people, and now that I'm not in person with them, I can't hand them a couple pages to read and to do. So it's talking to people about decluttering and then asking them how they've done. And then on Valentine's Day, I had a neighbor that brought me a bun cake, and she was giving out bun cakes to all the people in our area that she was friends with. And I happened to read an article from the Berkeley study, and the professor teaching the happiness course encourage everybody prior to Valentine's Day to do something to make them feel good. And people would go and give chocolate candies to everyone they came across on Valentine's Day. And things like that just seem to increase some of that inside happiness. Which doesn't happen if you're alone. You could go to the beach by yourself. You could watch the sunrise by yourself. It's just that needing to get out and do something to bring a little more happiness in your life, not always dwelling on what you're missing. Right. That's the big one. What you have versus what you don't. Mm -hmm. I think of a friend of mine who actually met his wife because they went to the same psychiatrist and they met in the waiting room. And they've been married for many, many years, so it worked. Doesn't always happen, we know that. That part of the experience is gone. Do either of you have much experience with group therapy by telemedicine? I know that alcoholics and narcotics anonymous and bipolar groups, they're doing a lot by telemedicine. Do you have any sense of that effective? Is it working? Is it plagued by just the absence of meetings with people, sitting next to people? Any sense of that at all? I think it comes down to the individual that some people would just say, I hate Zoom. Personally, when we do our book club, we have people that are away. They're in Colorado. They're here. They tune into the book club. So we might get 25 people, only of which maybe eight are in this area. So they like having that consistency and seeing faces that they know. And we've talked about just continuing with some Zoom, even if when we get back to being in person. You have to adapt to this. One of the things from a legal perspective that is being seriously challenged by the strict reading of the laws, I am not allowed to treat a patient who is not sitting in a state in which I am licensed. So if I have somebody who is in California, I do not have a California license, I couldn't treat them. I would imagine that is also the same in psychology. There has been movements, repeated movements, not really been able to go anywhere thus far to have a nationwide license. Has that come up to be problems with you folks yet? It's a huge problem. What we have is 27 states are part of SIPAC, which means if somebody from Florida goes up to another state, you could apply to that state to get temporary privileges. Unfortunately, the law in Florida has not yet passed. So if I have someone that goes out of state, I'm not allowed to see them. But anyone from any of these 27 states could see people in Florida. It's a very short application to get a temporary license. It's on the board right now to see if Florida should come part of the SIPAC. It's not passed yet. That whole thing of interstate controls over who you can talk to, totally understand more of it in terms of prescription medicines. The concept that because you live over the line, I can't talk to you is to me dinosaur age material. Mm-hmm. And frankly, even before the pandemic, in many instances disregarded. 
like Psychfact is trying to do this. It's been going on now for a couple of years. The progress is still, even though half the states are maybe involved, it's still ridiculously slow. What do you tell a patient of yours? And now they're living in, let's say, Atlanta, and they call you in need, and you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you more than maybe one or two times. I think that's malpractice and injurious to patients. Go call Joe Jones in the phone book because you're in Atlanta now. I just won't have any part of that. So I I do what I have to do. And that may be one of the spinoffs of the pandemic is to bring this, Mm. talk to somebody who lives, you know, you live in northern Florida and they live 10 miles north. They live in in Georgia. Can't talk to them. Yeah. And what do you do when you get uh, inquiries? I I get the emails because of certain things that I've gotten interested in in terms of diagnoses. People desperate for somebody to help them because not too many people may know about this or certainly where they're living. You're supposed to say, sorry, no way. The legal issues just walk right into ethical issues. More so now because of Tela. They weren't coming in from another state. And I think we feel it so much in Florida because we do have so many people that go up north or travel to see family or stay with family for a couple months. Mm -hmm. Those therapists in those states can talk to anyone that comes to Florida. They don't even have to know them, but we can see our own people. When this started many years ago, when there was the first elements of telehealth and you could call a doctor anywhere and you'd speak to them on the phone for 15 or 20 minutes and then they would send you medication. That was bad medicine, to say the least, but it frightened a lot. And so they want to at least know each other beforehand. And this is a significant shift in our medical legal notions of how we're going to deal with this. Things have changed. The tools have changed. Tremendously. I'm impressed both of you said because we moved away from the emphasis on what the pandemic did to us, now back to what life doing to us with the pandemic right. on the side. Fascinating. Rosalind Malnett and Andy Rosen, thank you both. I wish you a very good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you.